How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Good afternoon and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you're always in the know. Find us on the Internet at CommonwealthClub.org. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the club and our chair for today. This program is being held together with the Commonwealth Club's division called Climate One. Today's program features Senator Dianne Feinstein, the senator U- senior U.S. Senator from California, in conversation with Greg Dalton, Vice President for Special Projects at the Commonwealth Club. Let me mention briefly some of the many highlights of Senator Dianne Feinstein's career. As everyone here knows, Dianne Feinstein began her political career as President of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, then Mayor of San Francisco. In 1987, City and State Magazine named her America's Most Effective Mayor. The first woman to represent California in the Senate, since her election in 1992, Senator Feinstein has focused on national security issues at home and abroad, as well as on crime and violence and environmental issues, both in California and across the nation. She is a native of San Francisco. She assumed the chairmanship of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence in the 111th Congress, and she oversees the nation's 16 intelligence agencies, the first female senator to hold that position. Senator Feinstein has served across a wide range of committees in the Senate. She's a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, the Senate Appropriations Committee, where she chairs the Subcommittee on Energy and Water Development. Senator Feinstein also serves on the Senate Rules and Administration Committee, which she chaired during the 110th Congress. In that capacity, Senator Feinstein was the first woman to chair the Joint Congressional Committee on inaugural ceremonies, and she presided over the inauguration of President Barack Obama on January 20, 2009. We are very proud to welcome our distinguished San Francisco native and senior senator, Diane Feinstein, in conversation with Greg Dalton. Senator Feinstein, thank you for coming. Welcome. We have a lot of territory to cover here, international security, some financial security, and some energy issues. But let's start, and perhaps the royal wedding, we'll get to some other things later. But... um, uh, Let's start overseas in the Middle East. You've been very clear that the U.S. goal in Libya is regime change and the removal of Muammar Gaddafi. Now there's protests in Syria where he's using tanks and there are uh, there's concerns there. Uh, but the U.S. is imposing sanctions. So what do you think the U.S. should do in Syria with regard to uh, – should it be regime change or something else? Well, I think we need to be very cautious. There are actually five revolutions that are taking place in the Middle East – uh, there was Tunisia, uh, there was uh, Egypt, which is still ongoing, uh, now Libya, Syria, Yemen, and then some problems, not revolution, but in Jordan. So I think uh, you've got, we've got a situation where 
There is a lot of instability. There are serious unknown consequences of action. Um, my own view is that we've got 30-plus thousand troops in South Korea. We have 100,000-plus troops in Afghanistan. We've got 30,000 to 35,000 in Iraq. Uh, we have major problems to watch with Iran and Pakistan, one trying to become a nuclear power and the other a nuclear power and very unstable. I think the commitment of American resources at this particular time should be looked at very conservatively. Uh, I had questions about us getting into uh, Libya in mm-hmm. the way we did. Nonetheless, I think the president has been correct. No boots on the ground. America would lend its technology in terms of the no-fly zone and um, the attempt to take down the command and control system and then turn it over to NATO because NATO was a willing partner in this situation. Uh, Now we see Libya begins with Gaddafi and ends with Gaddafi. We know the kind of person that Gaddafi is. We know the president has said Gaddafi must go. The question comes, how do you back that up? And that's the unknown in getting involved in these situations. Uh, we have a law against assassination. Uh, Gaddafi will not move. Uh, therefore, there is stalemate right now right. in Libya. And so the question comes, what do we do about that stalemate? And what do we know about the opposition forces in, in Libya? There's been some conflicting statements about whether al-Qaeda is there or not. Uh, Admiral Mullen, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said no al-Qaeda. Other NATO commanders have said they've seen flickers of al-Qaeda. You're the chair of the Intelligence Committee. What can you tell us about any al-Qaeda presence in well, Libya? Well, I think the bulk of the so-called rebel movement is composed of people, uh, students, uh, young uh, lawyers, academicians, um, but that can't be a terribly large number. Uh, the rest is really unknown. Um, I think there is some information that's been in the public press that you have al-Qaeda figures that have returned to Libya to do some training. How deep or wide that is, I can't say at the present time. But, you know, if you're going to arm people, you really need to know that they're going to use those weapons wisely and well and are trained. So this becomes very difficult uh, because there is a certain liability that a nation assumes when it does this. We are providing uh, some non-lethal equipment uh, at the present time. Uh, we are using the Predator drone, which can... Uh, really be very specific in its strike, much more so than an aircraft. Um, and that's about it right now. Can you envision, uh, as a result of the stalemate, somebody, whether it's the British or the French or the Italians or perhaps the United States, needs to put boots on the ground to put more force if the stalemate continues? Well, I think, again, you know, this is a learning experience as we go. And, Greg, what we've seen is... It's very difficult to win this thing from the air. Right. Typically, so that's, yeah. that's a lesson. 
for everybody who says, oh, United States has to get involved in this. Look at what's happening to people. There's only so much we can do at this time. We're sorely tested financially uh, as well as militarily. And so I think that we really should consider very carefully what the national security interest of our country is before we get involved. And what is that interest in Libya? I mean, they they have one percent of the world oil. I think they I mean, can they attack our allies? What is the overriding national interest in Libya, in your view? Well, the, the national interest, I think, is goes back a ways to Gaddafi himself, and probably the takedown of the airliner, uh, which uh, for which Gaddafi is capable, and the kind of dictator that he has been. Um, I don't think that's really enough, and. Uh, you know, if you're going to look at national security interests, they are much more in Yemen, which is a safe harbor, where we know the people that are manufacturing uh, this new explosive, which is undetectable and magnetometers are, where we know Alaki is. And um, it's, to a great extent, Syria that becomes a pivotal nation with respect to Iran and a point of transfer from weapons coming from Tehran to Damascus in the Lebanon. And Lebanon now has at least 40,000 rockets, some of them much more sophisticated than at the last time Israel uh, went to war. And is that pivotal role of Syria one reason perhaps the U.S. isn't pushing President Assad a little harder? I can't answer that. I I don't know the answer to that question. Secretary of State Clinton was uh, in conversation recently with former Secretary Kissinger, and Secretary Kissinger made the remark that a lot of these Arab rulers have been in power for decades. And looking back, he surmised that perhaps the U.S. could have or should have anticipated that the time would come, perhaps not all at once, where they would be challenged. Do you think the U.S. intelligence community could have, maybe should have seen some of these um, these regimes becoming un- destabilized, or did they? Well, I happened to speak with the president this morning, and one of the things that I mentioned was, in my view, our intelligence coming out of the Middle East with respect to the movement of people is not very good. With respect to terrorist plots and counterterrorism, it's much better. So I think we need to see a change. And as we know this morning, uh, or tomorrow morning, the president will make an announcement about Leon Panetta being the Secretary of Defense and uh, General Petraeus becoming the head of the CIA. I believe that may be correct. Okay. Um, (laughs) I think that's pretty solid. Um, One of the other issues that's been in this milieu in the Middle East is is WikiLeaks, and you've been very outspoken about WikiLeaks and what you think ought to be be done about that. How has that played into the revelation of who who says what about whom? played into the, the dynamic in the Middle East. Has it harmed U.S. interests? Has it, has it been Oh, I believe it is harmful to United States interests. And we have a sp- very specific espionage law written a long time ago, I think in 1918. But it essentially says that the transfer of either classified or unclassified information uh, to do potential harm to a nation, I, I, I had it written down, I was going to read it, and I left it, it in the car, um, but essentially, uh, WikiLeaks qualifies, in my view, for a prosecution on the espionage statute. 
And do you think Julian Assange should be extradited from Sweden if he goes there to the United States? Well, I, I think uh, I think he has done this nation harm. I think that people have died and will die because of what he's doing. And um, I think he's done it with knowledge and with intent. And that, yes, I do think he should be prosecuted. Do you think that we've also learned about some, some things that shouldn't have happened? Is there any good side to, to the WikiLeaks that, that we've learned about some things that government was doing with power that, that maybe you know, people ought to know about? Or is it all, yeah, all well, bad? Well, of course. But you're taking both classified and unclassified information that is transmitted at, through a supposedly secure network, which is another story because that network is not nearly as secure as it should be and um, laying it all out. Though some of it's been redacted, and some news organizations would say they've... Ah, they've... Assange didn't redact it. The news organizations did some redaction. The news organizations, uh, I can speak for the New York Times, I believe, uh, talked with the government and redacted some of the names. Uh, I don't know if all of the other publications that he has released this to have done the same thing, but I would hazard a guess they have not. Are all leaks harmful? Leaks are a common occurrence in Washington. Everybody does it, both parties. Um, do you, you know, what leaks are okay and what leaks should be prosecuted? Well, classified information is classified information and should not be released until it's declassified. And uh, I really believe that. Uh, you can do it by error, and it's hard for those of us on the Intelligence Committee because if we've seen it in a classified form, you can't release it, period. Even if it later appears in the newspaper and somebody asks you about it, the fact that you're on the committee gives credibility to it. So you have to be very careful. For me, that's the hardest thing, because I tend to be forthcoming. I tend to say what I think, and I always have to pull myself up to remember, back. To remember where you learn yeah. something. It's hard for all of us. Uh, the New York Times today reported that a former Department of Justice official named Thomas Tam, uh, who in 2005 admitted that he leaked information to the New York Times about the National Security Agency wiretapping without a uh, court warrant. And the Obama administration has said it's, it's basically said it's not going to prosecute him. Do you think that's the right decision? No, I don't know the details of that case. I, I can't comment. Admiral Mullen, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, has said that one of the greatest threats to national security is our financial situation. So let's talk about the budget situation that's recently happened uh, in Washington. We've recently been through uh, an unusual middle-of-the-fiscal-year budget fight over continuing to fund the government for the rest of this fiscal year uh, and uh, almost shut down the government. Right. Um, now, I believe it was Paul Krugman in the New York Times wrote that the Democrats had a chance last fall to pass a budget for the entire year and chose not to because the elections were coming. Is that a fair assessment? Well, you also have to get 60 votes, and it's difficult to do it because, unfortunately, um, and and I have to say this, what the Republicans have done is slow-rolled in the Senate, and virtually everything that comes up goes to cloture, which means it has to get 60 votes. Uh, you can look at the numbers and see that in the past session this began, and it's continuing to some extent in this session. And um, the minute you begin a cloture motion, 
It runs for three days. So it slows things down. It's a way of stopping the president's appointments. It's a way of stopping progress. And I think it's wrong. You know, I'm elected to go there and cast a vote. Um, and yes or no. And a majority is 51 votes in the United States Senate. So what they have effectively done is created a supermajority, sometimes even to bring up a bill, to vote on a bill, you need 60 votes. So that cloture and 60 votes becomes a determining factor. And I believe that's a mistake. And there's some, Harry Reid and others have talked about modifying the, the uh, cloture movement. Are you in support of that? So that it kind of lowering the bar, making filibusters harder to implement and therefore... Well, I haven't really come to a conclusion on this. They've talked about, I guess, 55. Um, I think that's a possibility. Uh, I think it's too bad to have to do it. Uh, my hope has been that we would have an ability to... Uh, work together. Um, I try to work with Republicans. I think I do a pretty good job at it. Um, and I'd like to see this period end. A president is entitled to his appointees. They are entitled to rapid confirmation. And to have a president that's now halfway, more than halfway through his term, not have his administration in place is just not right. Diane Feinstein is the U.S. Senator from San, from California, uh, also from San Francisco, and we're discussing lots of issues here at, at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Paul Ryan is a Republican from Wisconsin who's put forward a, a, a roadmap for uh, the upcoming budget battle that, that preserves Medicare for people over 55 and preserves Social Security for people over 55. What do you think of the Ryan roadmap? A- it's basically unfair. That's what I think of it, because what it does is make the cuts basically in programs that the poor and the lower income of our nation are dependent on. And it does this to avoid having to put taxes back up where they were for the very wealthy. And I think everybody in this room has watched the recession, and we know who gained and who did well, and who didn't do well. Um, I think that's a huge mistake. I don't think you can solve the problem without revenue increases. And it should be a fair share. When I was mayor and I had to make some changes in the revenue structure, we did it in a fair share way, that everybody does their fair share. You can't leave the very wealthy out of this problem. So is your basic position that... um is to let the Bush tax cuts expire, which President Obama extended for a couple of years, and basically go back to the Clinton-era taxes? Is that? That's correct. It's about 3%. Uh, it's about $40 billion over a period of 10 years. It's important funding, and I, I think it's necessary because where we're going to go is into real class animosity, if we don't maintain fairness, uh, it's, it's estimated, uh, I think uh, Martin Blinder wrote this in a column, that some 72% of his cuts are taken just so the, the, the wealthy can maintain the 36%.
instead of going up to 39%. And um, it's just not right. How about other changes in the tax system? Uh, the, the estate tax, the mortgage deduction, would those... What's your position on those? This question whether the mortgage deduction should be continued because it incents people to buy big houses, take big deductions. Well, uh, I, I think tax reform is necessary. The specifics of it, I haven't really grappled with, to be candid with you. But I think I, I have tried uh, with respect to the American farm community, uh, particularly because of the high cost of land in certain places, one of them being California, uh, to defer taxes until the, the land on which agriculture is actually planted is sold for other purposes, and then to do it on a stepped-up basis. And I thought we were going to get it done, but unfortunately it didn't get done this past time, and I will continue to try with that. But the estate tax, uh, I think, is pretty much set at the 45% uh, level. And so we've addressed the, the, the revenue side. How about the, the expense side? Social Security, Medicare, defense. I think the best chance for movement in the Senate is the Bowles-Simpson plan. Mm-hmm. And we now have, from that committee that worked on it, three Republicans and three Democrats essentially have sat down to see if they could come to an agreement of how to proceed. That, to me offers the most hope. I'm told that they may have an answer within the next couple of weeks. I hope they can reach an accommodation because we Democrats, although we're in a bare majority, can't do anything to get the 60 votes without some Republicans. So if that can be the case, that's the best of all worlds. And it should combine the revenues and the cuts. Uh, some people, and that that's basically defines the center. I think the president is now coming around to the Bull-Simpson plan uh, and sort of, you know, there's some traction around that. Though Paul Krugman wrote in the New York Times that the bottom 80 percent uh, would have higher taxes than the Clinton years, and the top 20 percent, especially the top 5 percent, would have lower taxes. So it does, he thinks it's still regressive. Well, you know, that has to be changed. Um, look, I represent a huge stake. Uh, I mean, I know people in Los Angeles, a single mother with a couple of children working three jobs, temporary minimum wage jobs, just to stay even, just at the barest amount of survival. So uh, there is a need for a safety net for people in our society. It's just a fact. Uh, We have, you know, there are parts of California that are very deteriorated, and Life is hard for people. Uh, gasoline is high, uh, and I think it's a product of speculation coming out of the marketplace, candidly, because supply is not down, demand is not up. So what can it be other than the marketplace and speculation on the marketplace? And uh, the attorney general has an mm-hmm. effort to Look ferret that. that out. So this is not an easy time for people. The housing market is still bad. Um, California's had a high rate of home foreclosures. I think everybody in this audience would know what it would mean to lose your home this way. Um, it's very, very hard. And that's why I think the essence of a solution is its basic fairness, that this is a problem 
and everybody of every income group must help solve that problem. Speaker of the House John Boehner this week. Um, we're discussing current events with California Senator Dianne Feinstein at the Commonwealth Club today. Uh, Speaker Boehner recently said that big oil companies do not need the oil depletion allowance, and the president then got on that uh, issue. Uh, do you think that, that that is true, that the oil, that the subsidies for fossil fuels ought to be changed as part of this? Uh, Absolutely. And a lot of other things uh, as well. And and, uh, and how about encouragement for for renewable energy? I know that's something. Well, I happen to believe that global warming is real. Uh, I think most. <laughs> I have a constituent breakfast every Wednesday. We're changing it to Thursday morning, but and I go through this, and I'm surprised how many people don't know that the atmosphere around the earth is limited and that when you put fossil fuels and carbon dioxide or methane or other things into that atmosphere, they don't dissipate. They warm the atmosphere. And we've had a degree of change in the last uh, century, ever since the Industrial Revolution. And so the temperature of the earth is warming. And I look up at a map at the Arctic and you see for the first time in history uh, the Northwest Passage open year-round. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You see the oceans beginning to rise. You see the weather changing, which is a product, too, of global warming. More t- tornadoes, more heavy hurricanes, raindrops bigger. Uh, and you know that if we do nothing in the next 100 years, the Earth will warm 4 to 7 degrees. It's catastrophic if that happens. And people believe that the earth is immutable, that it doesn't change. And I say, you know, go back 250 million years and look at the fact that the likelihood is that there were just a single landmass, and that landmass all split apart based on earthquakes, based on volcanoes, that the earth can change and we can destroy the earth unless we're sensitive to these changes. So there is no question in my mind that we need to pay attention. And the way we need to pay attention is the development of alternatives to fossil fuels. And that can be done. And just uh, the other day, the governor signed um, legislation coming out of the legislature, which requires a 33% renewable standard for California energy. That's positive. And we have led the way. And California will have a cap-and-trade system. And I think the United States can well learn from that system. Our guest today at the Commonwealth Club is California Senator Dianne Feinstein. I'm Greg Dalton. A question from the audience asks, are California climate policies putting other state-funded programs at risk by driving industries out of state that produce jobs and tax revenues. California's been leading. Is it hurting the economy? I actually don't believe that. I think that energy is the largest source of new jobs for this state. Um, The estimate is that it can produce 100,000 additional jobs. And, um, you know, whether it's solar or wind or biofuels, uh, a lot of, uh, experimentation is going on at the University of California at the labs to come up with additional f- fuels. 
Uh, I went over to see the old Toyota factory, yeah. uh, which is now a Tesla factory, an all-electric mm-hmm. automobile, which is very smart-looking, and um, uh, things are happening, and we have to support them and see that the programs are in place that enable solar and wind uh, to really develop to be a substantial share of our energy production. And one way some people think to do that is to make fossil fuels more expensive or have them actually reflect the, the true costs. The Bowles Simpson plan calls for a 15 cent a gallon uh, tax increase on, on gasoline. Uh, there's a group here in California that includes George Schultz and people from Chrysler and Volvo want to raise a gasoline tax one penny a month over 10 years, very predictably and stably. Do you think that gasoline tax ought to be part of some mechanism for uh, encouraging renewables well, and addressing climate change? I'd go slow on that. We have very long commutes for workers in this mm-hmm. state. And, you know, if you're buying $5 a gallon gas for 20 gallons a tank and you're driving 100 miles to work and 100 miles back from work, which people do do, uh, it's very expensive. And so I would go slow on that. Slower than a penny a month. Yeah, I would. I mean, we have a big gas tax. We have a federal gas tax and a state gas tax now. This is not the time when gasoline is as high, when the nation is trying to pull itself out of recession. Um, we need to keep gasoline below the $4 mark right now. And you think that it's happening because of speculation, not because of demand from China or other things? That the no, industry- I do. I do. Because um, supply is down. Da- I mean, ex- demand is down. And supply is even. So what can it be? The futures market, maybe. Some people think that was what behind the spike in 2008, which was the last time we saw gas prices uh, this high. Uh, another energy issue that, that you've been uh, engaged in recently is nuclear energy. The, the disaster in Japan has raised new questions about nuclear programs in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, and recently you wrote a letter to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission that they should consider newly discovered fault lines before granting, granting license extensions for new nuclear, for operating nuclear plants. Most of the U.S. nuclear plants are near the ocean. Several of them, like uh, Diablo Canyon in California, are near earthquake faults. How do you think that we should respond on the nuclear front after Japan? Well, we have 104 nuclear plants in this country, two in California. About 23, I think, have the same uh, nuclear system as the Daiichi system. And I think there should be deep concern over what happened in Japan. It's a big learning lesson. I visited now the two nuclear plants, both Diablo, run by uh, PG&E, and San Onofre, run by Southern California Edison. And what I found there was staff very much concerned about safety, really good staff, 1,100 staff at Diablo and 3,000 staff at San Onofre each one producing about the same amount of uh, megawatts. However, what we have is a lack of attention to the whole fuel cycle, and particularly the spent fuel cycle. Hot rods are put in pools where they remain for up to 24 years now in our state. 
They should remain there for five to seven years. Then they can be transferred to what are called dry casks, which are like cylinders that are made to survive. They were made as transfer products Mm -hmm. for the fuel rods to be put in and transferred into permanent nuclear storage somewhere. That was going to be Yucca Mountain. Yucca Mountain is no more. I believe very strongly that we need either regional or centralized nuclear fuel storage. I think it's asking for trouble to keep hot rods in spent pools for decades and dry casks right on the site of nuclear reactors. I think they should be moved away. Recently, the CEO of a U.S. CEO of Arriva, which is a large French nuclear agency, said, "Give us your waste." They're, they apparently, you know, send it over to them. Is, is that a possibility? Transporting it might be a problem. No one wants this stuff to go through uh, their neighborhood well, on rail yards. But well, again, I'm reluctant to say because I haven't heard that, and so I I wouldn't just make a quick answer. Okay. The um, but how about the, you know, the number of plants we have and their, their quake safety? You know, some of these plants are coming up, and do you believe that they're fully ready for, for the kind of earthquake that we hear in California? No, is likely going to happen. These, quake, these uh, plants were built 30, 40 years ago you know, to lower right. seismic standards. Right. Well, California is what's called the ring of fire, yeah. and that ring of fire goes around the Pacific. And we've seen Banda Aceh. And we have seen uh, the quake in New Zealand, and we have seen the quake in Chile, big quakes, and the big quake with the huge tsunami uh, in Japan. Um, the United States Geological Service says the likelihood of that kind of quake in California is remote, that probably we would not have a quake over eight and that may be stretching it. I'm not sure I believe that because I'm not sure anybody's really in a position to know what right. Mother Nature will do. Japan didn't expect the quake yeah. they got. Right. So I think we've got to take a very good look, and I'm dedicated to it. I chair the subcommittee that provides the funds uh, for the Nuclear Regulatory Agency, and I'm going to try to push as far and as fast as I can push, to see that we really take a good look, a real examination at all facilities. What they're finding in Japan now is that corners were cut and things were not done that should have been done in order to save costs. And we can't afford that with nuclear energy. Jeff Byron is a... Our guest at the Commonwealth Club today is U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Jeff Byron is a former member of the California Energy Commission, uh, and he said the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is, is a captive agency. He's been captive by the industry. The industry pays yeah. for the NRC, uh, and it's been a rubber stamp. Is that fair? Um, I, I, don't, I, I don't really see that, to be candid with you. It is true, just as the FERC agency is paid for by the the Federal uh, Energy uh, Regulatory Commission, Commission. is paid for by power plants, essentially. Right. Um, This is the same situation. Uh, I had the chairman before my subcommittee, 
And he was, I thought, very direct, very forthright. Uh, he has followed up on everything I have asked him to do. Uh, I differ with him because he has said that uh, these plutonium rods, hot, can remain in the spent fuel pools for up to 100 years. I, I just see no evidence that one can come to that conclusion because these, in a big earthquake, these, it looks like the spent fuel pools, some of them ruptured in Japan. And I think we don't know for sure, but that's what it looks like. And that the fuel has leached and the hydrogen explosions came from that. So we need to be very careful and see and really know what we are doing. And once we decide, there's going to be the question of cost. Who's going to pay for this? And utilities will have a choice of either trying to get their ratepayers to pay for it or their shareholders to pay for it if they're investor-owned utilities. Do you have any thoughts on who's going to bear the cost of shoring up America's nuclear power plants from the lessons learned from Japan? Well, to get a nuclear permit takes a long time. So it's yeah. not the fastest game in town by a long shot. And I think now there's going to be a real look at the industry, uh, a look at the containment zones, a look at the reactor, a look at the dry casks, a look at the spent fuel pools. And until that's completed, I don't really think we're going to face the question of new nuclear power plants. One of the areas where we are building new power plants is, is in the area where there's desert, where there's lots of sunshine. And you've been an advocate for the, the Desert Pro, uh, Protection Act, which yeah. you championed in 1994 and want to expand now. And that has caused some environmentalists and people who want to build large solar plants in the desert to say some interesting um, family, intra-family feuds among people who are usually on the same side. So how do you think we can build new solar while protect the environment in the desert? Well, let me tell you what happened. Um, I remember the desert when you drive along Route 66 or Highway 40, and what you would see are old mattresses and car hulks and, <coughs> excuse me, it was kind of a disaster. <coughs> you don't see that anymore. The desert is wonderful. It's not like the Sahara. We have flora and fauna and um, uh, desert tortoises and bighorn sheep and Indian petroglyphs. And so I decided that we were going to try to see that the best parts of it were saved. We created Joshua Tree National Park, Death Valley National Park, and the Mojave Preserve. South directly of the preserve, in order to protect it, we began to buy some inholdings from a private company that had them. And one gentleman gave $30 million to this. In holdings being land inside? Being land, about 600,000 acres total to preserve and conserve. And so one gentleman gave the $30 million, and I think we raised from the federal government $18 million, and we bought this land with the understanding that it would be in conservation. Well... One day, somebody comes into my office and said, did you know that there are all these solar plants planned for the areas that have been purchased for conservation? I said, you've got to be kidding. And so I trot down there and meet with a number of the CEOs, and I see what they were intending to do. 
I see an eight by eight mile beautiful valley that was all going to be dug out with gravel, with a solar plant, um, 15 square miles, and it went on and on like that. So we put together a monument that would just protect the most pristine areas that have been undisturbed of this land. There is plenty of land in the desert that is disturbed, that can be used. And I think all of these companies are essentially finding other places uh, to build now where there is no real environmental challenge to things that are endangered, like desert tortoises. Land that's already impacted. I think they're deep, uh, yeah, exactly. land that already has some human activity. Exactly. We uh, call it disturbed land and private land. Then there's the question of distribution. I mean, getting the energy from where it's generated to the That's demand right. centers where the people are often involves going across somebody's ranch land, somebody's valued ecosystem, and there's some real messy fights there about people who are progressive saying, we need renewable energy, and yes, we might need to go across some places that are pretty. Well, that, that the transmission lines are another story, and there are transmission lines which come through there, at least two big ones. And um, you can live with those. So I think, oh yeah, we uh, yes, they're they're there, and I think we can live with them. Can you live with new ones? Well, it depends on where they go. Water is another big issue related to to solar thermal, and uh, you're, uh, I believe, chair of the Senate Appropriations Subcommittee on Energy and Water. Um, We have abundant water supply this year in California, but projections in climate change, as you mentioned, are for less water, more stress, more water fights. We're in a uh, tight financial situation. How are we going to handle allocating water, less water in the future, when we don't have money to build new conveyance or new um, well, storage? Yeah, here's the big thing. We'd, when the infrastructure was built, we were about 16 million people. We are now close to 38 million people, and we have essentially the same water infrastructure. One big federal project and one state project, which was begun uh, by Governor Pat Brown. Um, we should be able to hold water from the wet years. We ought to be able to collect this year's runoff and hold it at at-ground storage for the dry years. We need to do more of this. Sorry, at-ground, is that meaning above ground or underground? It, well, it's both. Okay. It's, it, we, we need to recharge the groundwater, which is very depleted, particularly in the southern part of the Central Valley, uh, and can have a real problem with subsidence. Uh, We need to uh, also increase storage. The legislature had looked at a bond, uh, which should go on the ballot, and keeps getting pushed back. It keeps yeah. getting pushed back, and I hope very much this year that a bond issue will go on the ballot. We need to have an adequate water storage. We need to be able to do the recycling, uh, the tertiary treatment, uh, the groundwater recharge, transferring water back and forth based on need, and some of those things, and we need the money to do it. One of the tensions is between fishermen and farmers, and some, you've sometimes favored uh, sending water down south to farmers, and, and do you also think we need to sometimes bend the Endangered Species Act uh, with regard to salmon and other species to kind of, as part of a water compromise? Well, no. I've had a real problem with the science 
that the Department of Interior has used to determine when to shut down the pumps. That if you catch seven smelt in the pumps, smelt are about this big. As big as your um, finger, yeah. You shut down the pumps. Well, did they count the number of smelt that were there in the first place? No. Did they count the smelt that were eaten by predator fish, which are all over the place? No. Did they count the smelt that might have died by the fact that sewage with ammonia is uh, emitted into that area? No. And so my belief is that we are the largest agricultural state in the union. I am very proud of California agriculture. I have tried to be helpful to it. We produce good produce. And it's a kind of, now that I live a lot on the East Coast, I know the difference. And trust me, (laughs) California agriculture is really top notch. So I want to see it be successful. And I th- a judge has just thrown out the smelt opinion uh, on the basis... What an unfortunate name for a fish or, yeah, or right. a case, yeah. On the basis of faulty biology. Now, the salmon opinion, they are going to compromise rather than, I think, have the same fate. So we need to look at how we do these things more carefully. And I think that will be the case... We're lucky we've got a year where we have enough water. Everybody has 100% of their contract, except for south of Delta farmers, which right now have 85%. I think that will increase, but it is enough that they can fully plant. Uh, One Another audience question kind of relates to certainly water bottles. says, uh, thank you for your work with baby bottle toxins. Do you think regulation of toxics and plastics will be feasible in the current political climate. There's a Thalet bill that came out of San Francisco, went to California, and now you helped make national. Right. I'm really glad that you asked that question. I did a bill to essentially ban something called phthalates from plastic toys. It was really based on some science that came forward that said that these plastics, their softeners and their hardeners, are really bad, for particularly for young children. And now there's one, BPA. And I have been trying to remove BPA from baby bottles, from infant formula, and I haven't been able to get it through yet. But there is solid evidence that it's an endocrine disruptor for small children, and that means that they have changes in their endocrine system. And we now know that girls are increasingly going through puberty at a much younger age. So I've become very interested in chemicals that are added that we know very little about. Uh, Europe has a precautionary system, and that means that the chemical has to be tested and found to be benign before it's added to a product. We don't. You have to prove after it's added to a product that it's harmful. And I tell people, you know, you, you, um, you go to a cleaner. The cleaner cleans your clothes. He puts them in a plastic bag. It's tied up. You bring it home. You undo the plastic bag and you put it on. Who knows what the cleaner used to clean the clothes? 
And so I say to people, take it out of the plastic bag, air it out for a week or even more before you use it. And um, I don't use plastic. Well, I use Pyrex now. And the next thing are canned goods because BPA lines all canned goods. It's a shelf extender for the grocery market. Well, different things in cans cause a leaching of that chemical into the foodstuff. And, you know, this is a hard fight because uh, the grocery stores want it. But there are some that are now taking action voluntarily to see that it does not exist. And taking on BPA and baby bottles, I'm very proud. Walmart, Target, other places don't sell them. Baby bottle companies are now changing. So there's good news happening. And I think we all have to become much more aware of the chemicals that we have around us every day. Our guest at the Commonwealth Club today is U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein. I'm Greg Dalton. Another question from the audience on, related to health says, how can you justify inept, opaque health legislation that was strong-armed through Congress uh, and, and establishes a vast myriad of costly bureaucracies and goes on? But I think you got the gist. Well, I got the gist. <laughs> I think the jury's out. I think people need to wait to see until the exchanges get started up and there is competition put into the market. I can tell you this, that the 11 big for-profit insurance companies make a huge amount of money, and they are not shy about raising premiums. Anthem, for example, for 800,000 California single policyholders had premium raises up to 39% at a given time when they had premium raises the year before. And I think there is no ability, and I have a, a bill that would give the Secretary of Health and Human Services the ability to set up a rate review panel to be sure that premium rates, the the what you pay for your health insurance premium is founded on just cause and not just for the bottom line, which is profit, because the profits are in the billions and billions of dollars of these companies. So I can't feel terribly sorry for them. Another audience question says that a young educator here in San Francisco, San Francisco, I can tell you that our schools are crumbling and the poor, especially black and brown communities, are suffering. And notes, another question asks uh, that we're engaged in three wars and notes the, the contrast between spending money on wars and not on our schools. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, these wars uh, were all funded on the debt. And as I said, this has never been done before. World War One, World War Two, the Korean War, the Vietnam War were all funded on a war tax. And yet President Bush chose not to do that, but to fund it on the debt. And it managed to add close to a trillion dollars, if not a trillion dollars, onto that debt. And so this is part of the problem that exists now. Um, schools are 
very much a state and local responsibility. Uh, the federal government only provides about 8% of the revenues, and that's under the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, largely for schools that have numbers of poor children in them, and that money is forthcoming. But basically, schools are funded off of the property tax, and this is a Proposition 13 state. I voted against Proposition 13, and I was the first mayor that had to deal with it um, it was very, very hard to deal with it because we lost a lot of our property tax dollars, some of which were given back in an assembly bill called AB8, I think. Um, but For listeners outside the state, uh, Proposition 13 was a reform of change in property tax assessments in California that started a nationwide movement on lowering taxes. That's right, and it put commercial property on the same rate of 1% as residential property. And many people believe, and I concur in this, that commercial property should be taxed on a different basis than residential property. Large companies have all sorts of... Called a split rate. Right. Large companies have all sorts of ways to change ownership of a building without triggering triggering a tax. Another question from the audience for Senator Feinstein. When will we see immigration reform? Well, (laughs) I wish I could say this year. Um, I don't think so. Uh, I have a bill which is limited to agriculture, which would provide a consistent source of labor to agriculture. Ladies and gentlemen, agriculture in this country is primarily carried out by undocumented people who are highly skilled, who are willing to work in 100 degrees in stoop labor, and have developed the skill. All you need to do is travel down through Watsonville and watch a lettuce harvest and see people how they harvest and the technical uh, means they use with their hands uh, to be able to do it, to know that it's a learned skill. Americans will not do this work. So most of the agricultural workers that you see out there are not legal. And it's becoming more and more precipitous for farmers and difficult to find a legal workforce. So I think the first thing we could do, because this is typical throughout the United States, is be able to provide um, an emergency program, whereas for the next five years, uh, people who have worked agriculture, who are undocumented, who have paid their taxes, who are willing to continue to work agriculture, are able to do it. So an amnesty for those? No amnesty. This particular bill would not have citizenship attached to it. It would get us through the next five years. Allow them to work. That's right. Uh, Thank you. Related question from the audience. I'm concerned about all the terrible killings in Mexico. Can you talk about that, please? Yes. You have seven big cartels that are now down to four big cartels. And they're called drug trafficking organization. And they are more brutal than the mafia ever was. And it's just terrible. In Ciudad Juarez, uh, I think some 35,000 people have been killed. And the brutality, the chopping off of heads, the... uh, 
killing of families, the killing of law enforcement, of reporters, of judges, um, is just a scourge. And you have a president, Calderon, who's trying to do the best he can to fight it. You have a real element of corruption within the military and within the police in Mexico. What we are trying to do is through special task forces build vetted units that can concentrate on intelligence on both sides of the border and begin to address special operations through the FBI on this. Mexico is now extraditing people to the United States to be tried. Um, some of the uh, Ariana Felix cartel, which was the Tijuana cartel, which is now taken over by another cartel, that most of those leaders are now serving time in American prisons. And so this has to continue. That's on the supply side. There's also the demand side. That's correct. As long as we buy and want this stuff and the guns come from the United States, so what's our own accountability and role in creating the demand and supplying the guns? Well, you know, some people say legalize drugs. I'm not there. You didn't uh, I've seen what drugs have done to people. I spent five years uh, sentencing women convicted of felonies uh, in the early 1960s down at the uh, state prison as an appointee of, of Pat Brown's. And I saw firsthand what drugs do to people and the addicting uh, quality. And uh, I visited Needle Park when it existed in Zurich. And I saw people passed out on the ground and vomiting. And uh, I, I don't think legalization is the way to go. Um, I think we, ha- we need to concentrate on prevention. And that begins with the very young. And I think parents need to play a much bigger role than they play in knowing what their youngsters are doing, what they're smoking, what they're drinking, uh, what they're using. Much more complicated these days. Um, another question from the audience. BP said they would start drilling again. Do you think that BP should be allowed to drill in offshore oil drilling? Well, I do believe that Interior is taking a very cautious role and that the minerals and mining um, section of Interior has new leadership now, is expanding the inspectors, uh, is much tougher on getting the equipment properly certified, that when Interior gives permission, it's got good grounds to do so. So you're cautiously optimistic yes. that the right management, we can continue to yes. drill. Uh, I believe the Western senators uh, for the three Western states had a, introduced a bill together to ban offshore oil drilling in the Pacific, is that That's true? right. The people of California have spoken through initiative. They do not want oil drilling off the coast. And both Senator Boxer and I respect that. And we will fight anything that's going to put oil drilling off the coast of California. But that effectively means it's going to either happen somewhere else off someone else's coast or on land... Uh, in Alaska, where is well, it going to come from? Well, let me tell you, if the state wants it, it's very difficult. Um, our state doesn't want it, and so it's easy. So in Louisiana and other Gulf states do? Yes. Okay. 
another energy question, is ethanol worth the fossil fuel energy to required to produce it? And you also, I believe, spoken about ethanol subsidies. Yes, I'm opposed to it. There's a trifecta of subsidies that now exist. There's a 54-cent tariff on uh, ethanol that can be imported cheaper. Uh, corn ethanol is not the best thing, uh, as we know. And there's a big subsidy for ethanol. You don't need to have these subsidies, and they cost billions of dollars a year. So in this respect, I agree with Senator Coburn, who also has a bill. <coughs> Excuse me. We will come together and uh, hopefully do away with the ethanol subsidies. Our guest at the Commonwealth Club today is California U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein. Another audience question is, what are you most proud of in your career? Well, recently I authored, I began an effort in 1993 essentially to address the fact that we need to increase vehicle mileage efficiency. And I started with Dick Bryant of Arizona, now no longer in the Senate, and Slade Gorton of Washington, no longer in the Senate. We couldn't even get a simple sense of the Senate resolution through, believe it or not. And so then I worked with Olympia Snow, and we did an SUV loophole closer to bring the mileage of SUVs down uh, to that of sedans. And then we couldn't get that done. And so then we tried a 10 over 10 to increase the mileage, the corporate average fuel efficiency, known as CAFE, by 10 miles by 1935. And believe it or not, thanks to Ted Stevens, who was chairman of the Commerce Committee at the time, he stuck it in a bill and it went through. And I am so proud of that because now you see mileage efficiency being raised. And it was over a 10-year effort to get there. But we got there. President Bush signed it. And I now we're beginning to see, and there is a provision that after 2015, it is done based on the best science. So we have a continuum of the reduction of um, mileage or improvement Increment, in mileage. Yeah, right, in, 35 uh, and go, going yes, above 35. Yes, right. And I look forward to us getting for all vehicles to 40 miles per, ga- per the gallon, 50 miles per the gallon. Even 60 has been floated out there by some people. It'd be great. We're getting very close to the end. I, I can't resist this local question from the audience. Do you have a funny Phil Burton story you can share? <laughs> A funny Phil Burton story. Known for setting aside large uh, areas of uh, this area for uh, natural national parks. Well, you know, Phil was a force unto his own. And he brooked nobody's interference. And whether it was drawing district lines or whether it was creating the Presidio into a national park, um, what he would always say is, you're in your mother's arms. <laughs> We've reached the point where you have to wrap this up. Before we do, I just want to thank Senator Feinstein for spending this time with you're us. You're welcome. Today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh,
in today's media landscape, it's increasingly rare to have these kind of substantive discussions without sort of uh, sound bites and shouting on cable TV. Thank you, the audience, for coming yes, thank out you. here tonight. Um, the uh, last question here, there's a couple of them. Uh, will you run for another term, Senator? Um, and when can we see your birth certificate? <laughs> Yes, I, my intention is to run for another term. Thank you. Thank you. And um, I don't know where my birth certificate is, but I was born right up here at UC Medical Center on Parnassus. Prove it. Okay. Yeah, prove it. Right. Our thanks to U.S. Senator Diane Feinstein for her comments here today at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Greg, thank you.